Welcome everyone to the electric chair. Of course, I am your host, Midnight Corey, once again. And this week, I'm really excited to be talking with an author. Uh, he happens to have written the new book, Zombies of Byzantium. I welcome to the show, Mr. Sean Munger. Sean, thank you for joining me today, man. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, this this book was uh, very interesting to me. Of course, anything with zombies, you know, I'm I'm all for. But uh, this, um, you know, <laughs> I'm glad I, you're enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you contacted me about the book, and I'm like, wow, that sounds really interesting. You know, I read the blurb about it and everything. So I'm like, hey, I'll give it a shot. So I actually, I, I picked it up. I picked up the the PDF version and uh, mm -hmm. started reading it and everything. I'm like, wow, this is really really good um what you did you took zombies and you sort of placed them in this historic uh sort of you know there, there's a lot of a lot of truth to the history going on here and you sort of injected zombies into this so uh this is fascinating tell everyone about zombies of byzantium and uh what it's all about and how this uh how you got this crazy idea well, uh, I'm a, uh, a historian, actually, by trade, and I got hooked on the history of Byzantium a couple of years ago and uh, had always been looking for something to do, some kind of writing project, a novel to write that's set in that, uh, that area. And, and a lot of people don't really know very much about Byzantium. It's uh, also called the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, but it was basically kind of the, like, uh, Rome split into east and west, and it, when people talk about the fall of Rome in 476, that was the Western Empire that fell. The Eastern Empire, which is called Byzantium, continued on for another thousand years. And I was struck by how few people really knew anything about it, and uh, just thinking about uh, what would be uh, kind of a fun uh, uh, book to do set in that era, I kind of, I, I had done a couple of projects with zombies, none of which really got off the ground, and I just kind of had the idea one day that, well, wait a minute, how about uh, zombies in Byzantium? And that uh, kind of became the, the genesis. So then, really, the game was trying to figure out, because Byzantium has a, a, an over 1,000-year history, uh, exactly uh, when to, uh, to spring a zombie outbreak on, uh, on this medieval civilization. And uh, so it took a while to kind of work out exactly how it was going to go and what situation I thought would make the most interesting and the most fun reading because uh, it's, I mean, I'm a historian, but the point of the book is not to teach history, obviously. It's, it's you know, it's just a fun book. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's so many possibilities, and it seemed to me that uh, the best, I think the best zombie stories are not just stories about, you know, band of hardy survivors versus zombies, but it's, it's where a, like kind of a zombie outbreak happens against the backdrop of some kind of human conflict. Mm -hmm. So I started to think about, okay, well, what would be the absolutely the worst time in Byzantine history for a zombie outbreak to happen? And the thing about the, the Byzantines is they were nobody really liked them. Uh, their country was at war for most of its 1,100-year history with a number of different enemies. Uh, the Turks, who finally conquered them in 1453, were only the last um, but uh, uh, Constantinople, uh, I, you lose count of the number of times it fell under siege during the 
during the period. But the, one of the most spectacular battles in the entire history of really of the world was this battle that I chose to show in the book, which is the siege that takes place in 717 AD. And it was the, the Saracens, basically the early uh, Islamic empire that had decided they were going to come wipe Byzantium off the map. And sort of I was thinking, well, you know, this would be absolutely the worst I, the worst time in history for s suddenly a zombie attack. And uh, that's kind of what gave me the idea for the plot of the book, which is, is if you've been reading, uh, starts with uh, against the backdrop of this, uh, this coming attack by the Saracens. And then uh, Stephen, the, the monk, the main character, uh, happens upon a village that's been destroyed by some agency unknown, and eventually they uh, realize that it's these undead uh, ghouls who are destroying everything. So now the question is, not only do they have to defend themselves from the zombies, but they have to get the attention of the emperor who's preoccupied with the invasion by the Saracens. And so how is that going to work? So it just kind of turned out being a really sort of fun uh, plot idea, sort of a setup for a plot. And uh, it kind of just sort of wrote itself once I had those those elements in place. Yeah. Yeah. I was fascinated. Um, you know, first I was a little intimidated because I'm like, wow, this is the Roman Empire. I mean, we're going back a lot of years, a lot of centuries uh, in history, and I am very weak. In that subject, I know very little about the Roman Empire, and so I was afraid that I, I wouldn't really know what was going on. Or on, you know, the the total flip side, maybe you were just going to hit me with so much history and so much. Well, this was a, this was the emperor here, and he did this, and all these people, you know, and just really hit me with a lot of facts. Um, but actually, you found a, a really great medium that. Uh, uh, like you said, you know, you weren't trying to teach a history lesson. And that was one of the first things, actually, that I picked up on uh, as I was reading the book, is that you found this great balance, that uh, you did mention history. Uh, you said a few things here and there, but you gave me just enough to set the scene, and then you put your characters into action. Uh, you know, you really didn't, uh, you know, just assault me with this uh, crazy history lesson. And uh, so I really appreciated that. So uh, great job on that, man. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it, you know, it's always tough when you're kind of coming from a, a background of, of history. You know, when historians write books, it's tough for them not to really assault the reader with, with so many facts. And it, it, it helps a little bit the fact that so few people know anything about Byzantium. And I remember having a conversation with someone about the book and, and you know, they said, well, who knows what Byzantium is? And, and it, I mean, really part of it is I don't care, really. You know, I don't care if people think it's sort of a made-up fantasy kingdom. I mean, it's not, but uh, the point is to tell a story and to tell an interesting story. And so I, I, I did want to try to set the scene and kind of put the reader in that world and then sort of let the characters take over from, from there. So uh, that was always kind of my objective for the, for the book was to, you know, first and foremost, make it, make it an interesting story that, that people would want to read. Yeah, yeah, and it was it. Uh, it's been holding my interest throughout. I mean, every time I I go and I'm like, ah, I'm out of time. You know, I can't. I don't have any time to read mm -hmm. anymore. I got to get on to the, the next thing or whatever. I'm like, oh man, I want to keep reading this. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really really good. I love your style, um, the flow. Right. Again, you know, you're not. Uh, it's not like I'm reading a history textbook or any sort of textbook uh, at all. Um, I'm just reading. I think some really great prose and uh, some really easy writing to to read 
And uh, so, I mean, it just goes by. It's like butter, man. It, it just goes by <laughs> very easily and very enjoyably. Um, so uh, I really, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in uh, the choice of your main character. Uh, one of the main characters, mm-hmm. of course, is Misfit Monk. You know, he's mm-hmm. uh, he has a whole lot of uh, issues and a lot of ghosts in his closet and everything. And uh, it's uh, interesting to me. He's um, involved in iconography. That's how you say uh-huh. it. Um, you know, he makes icons, right. and I, I sort of looked this up. I'm, I'm not real, uh, real keen on uh, Catholicism, especially around this uh, this era. You know, a lot of the religious mm-hmm. things, and so I'm like, oh, what what exactly is going on with that? And so uh, you actually piqued my interest, and I went and I looked up. You know, what uh, iconographers did, and uh, so this guy, he's sort of interesting. But uh, how did you come up with the idea? Why did you decide to focus on this kind of uh, main character? Well, um, a number of reasons. Um, he's a, he is a monk, and actually in Byzantium, that was uh, probably the, the number one career choice for, uh, for young men. Uh, and he's, he's a young monk. He's, he's in his early 20s. Um, at one point, in the, the, the Byzantines were very, very religious people. Uh, incidentally, they were Orthodox, not Catholic. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, there's, there was a split between the Orthodox and Catholic Church uh, that officially started a couple of centuries after the book takes place, but it was really kind of ongoing at the time. Um, but, you know, religion was a very uh, all-pervasive thing for people in this society, and they had, you know, conversations in the streets and at taverns and over their dinner tables about, you know, all of these religious you know, religious dogma and issues and mythology of the saints and things like that. Um, but uh, a lot of young men went into monasteries and became monks, and I thought that would be an interesting uh, choice for a main character, particularly in a book like this, because you would sort of expect, uh, you know, a zombie outbreak, your main character is going to be, you know, a warrior or a knight of, of some kind. Um, they didn't really have knights in Byzantium in the way they did in Western Europe. But um, so I thought I'd kind of turn that on its head. And, OK, here's a guy whose job is to, you know, pray all day and paint pictures. Um, and, uh, you know, what if a guy like that was suddenly thrust into this situation with, you know, these these creatures that are, you know, destroying everything? Um, and it kind of, I, I gave him some issues in order to sort of pique the interest of the reader, uh, particularly, I mean, you're, you're starting from a deficit if you have a monk as a main character, because people are going to assume that it's just this kind of little roly poly guy with a, you know, with a bowl cut, you know, with a mm-hmm. rope around his waist, just kind of sitting there praying all day. And, uh, uh, actually in, in Byzantium and, you know, kind of even in our own time, uh, monks can be surprisingly hip, especially in the, in the Orthodox church, they have, you know, they have ponytails and beards and they, uh, you know, they, they talk about some, you know, a lot of interesting stuff. And uh, this kid is a, is a gifted artist, but he's, he, he does have, uh, he does have some, some issues uh, trying to conform to the monastic lifestyle, uh, particularly where women are concerned. Um, so I thought that would be kind of an endearing, an endearing character. Um, and I also kind of wanted to play him because his the 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 other main uh, or his sidekick is this this other monk Theophilus who's uh, mm-hmm. this decrepit you know eighty year old guy and I, I kind of imagine him you know, with this long gray beard and sort of looking a little bit like Gandalf the Gray 
and uh, you know, yet the zombies attack, and this guy is just absolutely, you know, hardcore. He's got a sword in each hand, and you know, he's just slicing and dicing him, and he's like, "Oh, is that all you have for me? You know, do your worst," and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I thought that would be sort of a, a fun image, you know, for the readers that this, you know, this eighty-year-old guy, a monk, you know, goes out with a, you know, with two swords and a pitchfork, and he's just, you know, slaughtering zombies right and left. So uh, I kind of put him, uh, him and uh, Stephen as kind of a duo uh, through through some of their misadventures. Yeah, um, I love that dynamic because he was constantly uh, putting Stephen down for being so soft. Mm-hmm. You know, like the youth today, right. they're so soft. You know, he's kind of that, that right. grouchy old man who's like, you kids don't know how good you got it. I can't believe that, yeah. you know, you guys are... <laughs> Oh man! Don't tell me that uh, you, you can't do this and you can't do that. Look at me! I'm 80 years old and I can still do this and that. And uh, I'm not afraid here, and you're afraid of this. And uh, <laughs> that was just hilarious. I, I love that uh, the dynamic yeah. between those characters. Yeah, I I, I thought it'd be funny, and and I thought that I, I I picked the the specific. I mean, a lot of people, you know, monks had different jobs in 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 monasteries, you know, as as they do today. Uh, but I thought making uh, the main character an iconographer would also be very interesting for for a number of reasons. And one of them is there's a subplot in the book involving this religious controversy, which this is historical. It really did happen. Uh, it was this controversy called iconoclasm. And it was a big religious uh, doctrine, question of religious doctrine about whether or not it was permissible in you know the eyes of God to show Christ or God in visual form. And the Byzantines went around and around about this for about 150 years. And I mean, you know, they had literally riots in the streets over this question. So I thought that would be interesting. And, and the, the emperor who, who shows up in the book, Leo III, was the first emperor to make iconoclasm really an issue in society. And so we, we sort of have this this tension where Stephen is is going to be basically put out of business by this new new doctrine which is being you know pushed by the emperor and so there's uh, there, there's there's some tension there and, and and you see as the book develops uh, you know icons are kind of a uh, and one particular icon uh, sort of sort of resurfaces throughout the the course of the the course of the book um, also, I was kind of inspired by uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, which is a Russian film called uh, Andrei Rublev, and it's by the, the director Tarkovsky, uh, who also did the original Solaris and uh, some other, uh, some other uh, really great movies. And Andrei Rublev's a wonderful film. It was made in Russia in the 60s, and it takes place in, in Russia in the uh, uh, late 14th century. And, it, and Andrei Rublev in real life was an icon painter. And just some of the images from from that film and some of the ways that they talked about it. It's one of the most amazing depictions of the Middle Ages I think you you could ever see in a movie. And I kind of wanted some of that same quality in the book because I just because I admired it so much. But I also didn't want to make it, you know, a, a stuffy book about religious doctrine because, you know, it is about, you know, people fighting zombies and all this, you know, exciting thing happening. So I, I just kind of wanted to pl- sort of confound the reader's expectations and and uh you know get people talking you know when they put the book down it's like wow i just you know read a book about a monk and it was you know it was really fun <laughs> so <laughs> no that was I, my idea i love that you're putting so much depth into it and that you are uh you are exploring these issues and a lot of different things and again you're not getting too deep into it you know you're mm-hmm. not uh um, you know, really, really getting into any one subject, anything uh, too much. 
uh, you know where the focus is, mm-hmm. and uh, you keep it going. And uh, again, being that I have not finished the book yet, um, you know, I, I I have no idea what's what's going to happen uh, towards the end and everything, which I am just really excited to find out um, because <laughs> it's so good. But uh, man, it's uh, it's actually really fascinating talking with you because uh, I, again, you're you're a historian and you also teach and uh, you know as soon as i learned that actually i, I was finding out more about you uh before the show here and uh mm-hmm. i'm like wow this is gonna be a really <laughs> smart guy and i am just i i have nothing you know i i'm just i'm i'm just this some podcaster out here and um really you're proving that right now because i i'm just fascinated by uh how much you do know and how much you're drawing from in history and uh, just all these all these different things, man. It's really fascinating. I, I sort of want to just sit back and say, Sean, tell me more. Tell me more. What was going on? Uh, what else was going on? I mean, how how did this affect you know the rest of uh, the Roman Empire? How did it, you know? And just keep going. I mean, this is uh, this is really good, and I think this is a great uh, testament to your storytelling ability, um, which translates into your writing, um, because um, this is exactly what I was experiencing in your book. Um, so. Well, I, I try to I try to keep it interesting. And, you know, when I teach, um, I, I, first of all, I, I haven't been a teacher for, for more than a couple of years. Um, I, I used to be a lawyer of all things. Oh, um, wow. Wow. And toward kind of toward the end of my uh, uh, my legal career, I was doing a lot of volunteer work that involved teaching because I my uh, original before I went to law school, my original um, degree, undergraduate degree was in history. And uh, I just through some some volunteer contacts that I had, I ended up teaching a a course at a uh, at, at a, an adult Sunday school of all places, um, and the people running the course were doing they were doing a unit on the history of of Christianity, and they, and I I don't have a religious background, hmm. uh, but they they wanted someone they didn't have anyone who knew anything <coughs> about the Middle Ages, so I. And I had done a lot of reading just on my own in in uh, uh, Byzantine history, and I met with uh, uh, one of the people who was who was starting this program, and I told him, "Well, look, you know, I I can do this, but understand my, you know, it's Byzantium that I know about. It's not, you know, it's not like I'm trained in the history of you know religions or something like that." Mm-hmm. Uh, so they let me teach this course, and I taught an 11 week uh, course on the history of Byzantium. And sit through 11 weeks of medieval history is that's a tall order for a lot of people. Hmm. So the but the the key to doing it is, I mean, you do have to keep their interest. And, you know, PowerPoint is a blessing for all teachers, I think, because (laughs) it really does kind of help focus. And and you always got to You always got to make them laugh. Always put a put a joke in every lecture. And after they laugh, they'll pay attention to what you say. So. I kind of had some experience in in trying to treat something particularly. I mean, medieval history is is dry as dust for most people, but it it doesn't need to be because it's so rich with with uh, these amazing things. And there's battles, and there's kings, and there's you know all of these incredible you know voyages of discovery and uh, books being written that are amazing and things like that. Um, so it, it, it's really a very, very rich period uh, to to try to present, and and uh, but the you know history really is telling a story. It's telling stories about the past. So 
when I left my uh, my law career, I decided, well, I'm you know I want to be a professor. So uh, that's the reason I'm I'm kind of back in uh, back in school after a after a career and uh, kind of doing doing writing on the side. But it's it's just been wonderfully enriching, and uh, you know doing research for a book like this is is about as much fun as you can have doing research. Uh, you know, we historians love it, but we don't mm-hmm. pretend that anyone else does. Yeah. <laughs> but well, no, but, yeah, you know that, it's. That, that translates, though, you know, and yeah. uh, I'm sure it does in your teaching and uh, because it surely does in your writing. And like I said, just talking with you and I would, I would, you know, I wish that you had been one of my teachers, you know, when I had one of these history <laughs> classes back in college, man, because uh, you would have made it so much better than it was. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, man. But uh, I, I just love, you know, going back to talking about monks and, uh, you mm-hmm. know, just sort of interesting quirks about history that people might might assume is just boring and, you know, there's there's nothing really interesting there. Um, you know, you're talking about, you know, monks being actually a very popular uh, profession, you know, sort of a career path for young men mm-hmm. in, in this mm-hmm. era. And, um, you know, something I'm I'm a bit of a uh, beer aficionado myself, <laughs> as am I. <laughs> and oh, oh, well, um, and monks are known to have made some of the finest beer in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, it has to do a lot from the region, I'm sure, and the sort of the, the wells that they're drawing from, you know, the water and everything. But uh, it's just interesting that, uh, you know, monks were so talented and so, so known for making beer, which is actually, it wasn't just a beverage to get drunk on and have a good time, have some right. parties, but it was actually sort of a staple. There, there was actually some right. necessity there for yeah. that beverage because um, of the conditions that they were in. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, water supplies have, have only been, you know, uh, drinking a glass of water, just a plain glass of water, that is totally a feature of our modern world because it just, you know, nowhere in the world was water ever clean enough to trust. So that, you know, many people drank beer or wine uh, just as a normal course, you know, until fairly recently in, in history. And, uh, you're right that monks uh, were instrumental in, in making a lot of amazing beers and wines as well. Uh, a yeah. monas- number of monasteries in France are very famous for, uh, for developing uh, wine. Uh, I live in Oregon, and there's actually there is a monastery here in Oregon where uh, it's attached to a vineyard. So that, that's not a bygone tradition oh, in, cool. in, in any way. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So... You know, it's it's just something. Um, uh, there is so much to draw on in history. You know, without without even you know it, putting zombies in there, there mm. there is so much to draw from. And I found that out, man, when I was uh, you know my first several years in college, I was actually a literature major. Um, and, oh, great! Uh, and so, but I had no idea what I was getting into because I'd just drawn that off of you know I, I went through several years of reading a lot of Stephen King and Dean Koontz and uh-huh. you know a lot of more mainstream horror stuff and I'm like I love to read so I'd be great with literature and then I go to college and it's like oh my god they present me with uh, you know like Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and uh, <laughs> you know Chaucer things like that and man it, it it totally overwhelmed me at first it blew me away I'm like what is this stuff. But man, once I got into it, once I studied it, pretty much because I had to, to pass the test mm-hmm, and pass mm-hmm, the course. Right. But once I really got into it and understood it and figured out a lot of what was going on there, dude, there are stories there that are just as captivating, if not more, as far as scandal, you know, sex, drunkenness, mm-hmm. uh, drug, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. just uh, across the board, you know, we see all the issues 
even that we see today in society that we're still dealing with, mm-hmm. uh, that's nothing new. I mean, we've been dealing right. with this for centuries and centuries and centuries, and it's just the culture has changed, the means of communication has changed, and uh, there's a lot lost sort of in that translation. But man, it is <laughs> there is some good stuff going back, uh, yeah. especially in these medieval times. It's it's crazy. Oh yeah. oh yeah, yeah. No, the Middle Ages is so rich in in yeah in literature and culture and art and uh, history, and it's kind of an uh, kind of an unknown period for for a lot of you know a lot of people. Uh, we think of. Uh, uh, part at least the kind of the early part of the Middle Ages is sort of the Dark Ages, um, and that's kind of a Western centric viewpoint because it's true that after the fall of at least the Western Roman Empire, kind of Western Europe fell into a decline that lasted several centuries. But during that kind of Dark Age period, you know, Dark Age in quotes, you had Byzantium was the richest civilization in the world in, you know, in the 8th century, 8th, 9th century, uh, China being, you know, a close second and, and eventually surpassing them. And there was still such this rich culture that was going on at the same time that is sort of forgotten, I think. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to put, uh, uh, have a book about Byzantium is it, it has such a little uh, permeation in, into popular culture at all. I mean, I don't think... Uh, Byzantium has ever been depicted in a, in a, a major movie, for example. Hmm. I can't think of a single one. Um, but um, and it was interesting because when I, you know, when I, I did a, an interview uh, with a, a website, a great website called the, the Blood Theater. Oh yeah. Uh, and they did a they did an, an interview. A friend of mine uh, writes for them and did an interview with me, and he asked me about well, and he asked me some kind of some of the same questions about well, why is the main character a monk and you know, why did you choose that? And why, you know, why not something like, you know, a knight or, or, uh, you know, a nobleman or something along those lines. And, and that was an interesting question because it kind of highlights, I I think, you know, Byzantium was never really a feudal society. They didn't really have feudalism the way that Western European countries did in the middle ages. So it, it sort of confounds your expectations for, you know, what the middle ages were really like. I mean, it's not all, you know, knights in, in, you know, plate armor and, you know, I, I did, and in the book, I specifically didn't want to have the, the traditional tropes, you know, the medieval tropes of the jousting match. And then you have, you know, the big banquet where, you know, people are throwing chicken bones on the floor. And, you know, you've got the, the minstrels with the, uh, you know, somebody with a mandolin. And, you know, I, I didn't I wanted to kind of get away from those types of uh, those types of, of tropes. Um, one of my earlier books, which was which was just uh, uh, went by very very quickly and, and didn't, didn't really get any notice but it was called Beowulf is boring and it's <laughs> it's sort of a mashup of like medieval like like the medieval Beowulf legend and and it's it's like it's kind of metafictional in sort of like making fun of those kind of medieval tropes <laughs> and uh it was just sort of a fun little you know comedy book to do uh but you know some of some of the issues that that about how we perceive the Middle Ages kind of kind of made their way into uh, zombies of Byzantium and and the reception the book has gotten is uh, that's one of the things that people have said consistently is you know wow I you know I never thought about this period or I never knew anything about you know this part of the world or or whatever and so people have been I think have responded to that uh, in a way that's that's very gratifying both as a storyteller and also a, a historian. Yeah. 
Yeah, well done. Well done. Um, you certainly have me interested in uh, this period of history. And, uh, of course, you have me mis- uh, nostalgic. Again, for you know, going back to all these things that I I learned in college about this uh, mm-hmm. this period in literature, and I totally forgot about Beowulf, man. Because wow, I don't know, <laughs> we spent so much time on Beowulf. We read uh, the actual, we read the the old English version of it, and we mm. read the translation, and uh, we sort of had to you know know what was going on both times, which is a you know a huge challenge. But uh, yeah, a great story there again, a, a different, very different sort of storytelling. Uh, at that point in time, but uh, man, uh, you know, it was just something really fun at the time. And I'm not sure if I pick up Beowulf again today and read it, I, I'm not sure if it would hold that same magic right mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. Um, as it did to me when I was first getting into it and first learning about it in this uh, this time period. But uh, mm-hmm. anyhow, it was, uh, you know, you'd, you'd just do a great job of getting me reinterested in history and uh, wanting to go and find out more about this time period. But um Let's uh, let's talk about the zombies now, um, okay. because uh, I love. First of all, I just love the style of zombies that you chose for this, because <laughs> here we are. Um, I, I think we're in an age where we see movies like uh, Twenty Eight Days Later, uh, mm-hmm. Dawn of the Dead remake, um, Zombieland. Um, I think fast zombies have have taken over uh, the mainstream zombie cinema. Um, and while people can appreciate Romero and slow zombies and a lot of the slow zombie movies that are, have come out and are still coming out, um, I think a lot of, uh, you know, our younger audiences are sort of, uh, wanting fast zombies and why is just beyond me. I mean, I, I hear them explaining it, but I just don't get it myself. I love slow zombies and I was so happy that we have slow shambling zombies Mm. Um, in your book um was that a conscious decision for you yes it was i when i when i wrote the book i had to kind of decide on the rules uh that uh that i was going to use uh, and i i mean i i was free to pick you know anything that i that i wanted to do or even make up something new but i i chose to go with something that was kind of traditional um and kind of a th- a throwback to the to the romero style but really, sort of uh, my my Bible, at least as far as how the zombies uh, operated, was uh, Max Brooks's uh, book, The Zombie Survival Guide. Good man. Good and man. and it, it was it was very funny because while I was writing the book uh, in my office, there was you know a pile of whenever I write anything, there's always a pile of source material you know sitting sitting next to my computer, and so. I had on my desk open like three volumes of the Oxford History of Byzantium and uh, the, one of the textbooks by uh, Warren Treadgold, who's, who's probably the, the preeminent Byzantine scholar in the United States. And then I had uh, the Zombie Survival Guide <laughs> Beautiful. You know, uh, open. So, and, and it was interesting because in the, in the editing phase of, of the book uh, with uh, Samhain Publishing, which is absolutely wonderful people there, by the way, can't say enough good things about them. Um, but some of these things came up where I, I had made some kind of subtle errors on like zombie behavior. And there was a particular issue about what happened. I remember this, this came up with the, with one of the editors, like what happens when you behead a zombie? Does the body just go limp or does it continue to kick around or, you know, what happens? 
So we mm-hmm. kind of had to had to c- kind of go back to the Bible to uh, to sort of uh, to sort of resolve that one. Um, nice. But I, I I did it I did it the way I did it, uh, kind of for the for the nostalgia reasons and and to be uh, uh, consistent with with the way at least the, the way I interpret Max Brooks uh, his portrayal of of zombies. But also I think it's I think it's a more uh, interesting threat. Um, and it's kind of it's interesting in sort of an existential way because you have, you know, one single zombie is not really that uh, terrifying, uh, especially if you know it moves slow and if it's you know shedding pieces of itself, uh, you know, as it's shambling slowly towards you, you know, okay, if you have, you know, in today's world, if you have you know an assault rifle. Or in medieval times, if you have a broadsword, okay, you're going to make short work of that. So, right. you know, but what happens if you have, you know, 10,000 of those, you know, kind of all coming towards you? Um, and I think what's scary about zombies is that they're inexorable. I mean, yeah. you just can't, you know, especially in numbers, you just can't get away from them. And uh, as, as I'm sure you've noticed as you, as you go through the book, the characters encounter greater and greater numbers of them. Uh, as the story goes on, so the the problem sort of compounds itself, um, and I think that's also kind of plays on. I mean, sort of the zombie infection scenario is is a fear that I, I think is or strokes a fear in kind of our modern world. We're afraid of, you know, and this is this is not new, but we're afraid of epidemics and we're afraid of you know these uncontrollable diseases that get loose and and that would also have been a, a very profound fear in the middle ages of course oh yeah uh, so you sort of combine uh you know this this threat that that compounds itself geometrically um with this very kind of unique uh, uh you know threat that 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 these these creatures pose in a large number and uh in, enters into some interesting situations from the character's point of view of okay well how do we you know, it's the 8th century AD. How do we deal with, you know, 20,000 zombies in, you know, running rampant through the streets of what was then one of the world's largest cities? Um, so, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. And I think slow zombies uh, can draw so many more um, parallels and uh, metaphors uh, for different things uh, mm-hmm. than fast zombies can. And uh, especially, you know, when you're coming from a historical fiction sort of standpoint, uh, I, I just don't see how running zombies could really fit in. Uh, you know, especially, right. you know, in your book, man, in, in Byzantium, I don't think running zombies even would have made sense. Uh, it yeah. just uh, it wouldn't have. Um, and coming up, you know, even to the, the modern era, um, they still don't make sense to me, actually. I, I just... they for so many reasons and uh i've gotten into so many arguments but right now i'm just at the point where why argue i mean you're you're just gonna you like what you like and you, you, i mean mm-hmm. zombies mm-hmm. aren't real so i mean what am i mm-hmm. you know, right. just sort of spinning your wheels no matter yeah. what but uh i don't know it's just uh, to me the slow zombies r- can represent so much more um mm. and uh there's so much more to say there and I, I think one, one of the other factors that, that kind of plays uh, characteristics of the zombies that is made much of in the book is is not just that they're slow, but they're also like kind of slow to transform. 
Um, I think there's a, there's a part in the book where they actually, some of the characters actually time how long it takes for a dead person to reanimate as a zombie. Mm. Um, and in fact, that time lag becomes sort of a plot point later on. But, uh, you know, in some of the, some of the more modern movies, uh, you know, you see someone's bitten by a zombie and then, you know, 30 seconds later they're, you know, they're transformed and it's, you know, gee, you know, I, I, we don't even have like modern medicines that act that, you know, that quickly. Yeah. So, you know, there's gotta be some, there's gotta be something there. And, and, and that kind of makes it also sort of interesting because, uh, it, it, it it compounds the, the the danger in sort of an odd way because you have, uh, you know, okay, the creatures are very slow and they're slow to transform, so it should seem like, okay, well, what's your problem? Hmm. You know, it should be easy to take care of these creatures, but of course, you know, it's not. Right. Um, which I and I think I think one of the other things that's uh, that's so interesting about so many zombie stories is the idea of unintended consequences. Hmm. Uh, that's a huge trope in horror films across the board. I mean, not just zombie films, but, you know, in the 1950s, all the, the science fiction movies like, you know, Them and things like that, the, that, you know, monsters were bred from, as an unintended consequence, you know, usually of atomic weapons or some, you know, pollution or something like that. Um, and uh, that trope sort of reappears, I think, in, in, uh, in zombie fiction as well um i'm thinking of uh the ending of uh uh was it the dan o'bannon movie was return of the living dead oh yeah <laughs> uh and you know very much an, uh, you know the punchline is sort of an unintended consequences type of situation mm-hmm. um so and and that that's a uh, that kind of of reasoning where it's like well you know we're gonna do x and then it ends up having you know a, a huge boomerang effect that's a major plot point in the book and one that I wanted to get in because it, it is so reminiscent, I think, of modern, you know, modern horror stories. Wow. Wow. You're absolutely right, man. And, and thank you for that. Even though, uh, you know, mentioning Return of the Living Dead like you did, isn't it interesting? That is such a great movie. And that's, again, oh, yeah. another one of my favorite zombie movies. But isn't it interesting that those zombies run? Right, you know, and they talk. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and they 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 do a lot of. Th- Actually, they can operate a a CB, and yeah. uh, you know, order yeah. more paramedics. So you right, know, that's, exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, it's 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 funny. Uh, one of the one of the many places I grew up was was Omaha, Nebraska, and and I actually. The guy who was in that movie, the guy who goes send more cops. I actually I actually met that guy. Yes. he's from Omaha. Uh, friend wow. of my uh, friend of my family. So uh, that that's that's funny that you that you bring up that that specific point. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, in in some movies it works. I mean, you know, you talk about Return mm-hmm. of the Living Dead, and it totally works because we're dealing with, I think, a whole different universe. Even though they mm-hmm. do uh, reference Night of the Living Dead as sort of being the precursor to why everything happens in Return, um, you know, just sort of the comedy. The weirdness of it, uh, I, mm-hmm. you know, just mm-hmm. how they sell it to me it works. And mm-hmm. uh, but I see just, uh, you know, even uh, modern running zombie films. I just uh, they don't sell it to me as much. They mm-hmm. just sort of assume a lot of things. And well, whoop, hey, this is how they are when they come back. Right. Or whoops, maybe they didn't even die at all. Maybe they're just, you know, in 28 days later, maybe they're just living people that just have this crazy virus and are running yeah, wild yeah. and sort of acting sort of like zombies, um, yeah, you yeah. know, and it's just everything has become so convoluted. And I think maybe that's because, I mean, the the zombie thing, 
hasn't been really clearly defined. I mean, there are a lot of rules. You know, a lot of people mm-hmm. go by the Romero Bible. Um, but, uh, I mean, really, it's it's a weird sort of creature that we're dealing with when it comes to zombies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. uh, so many interpretations. And, uh, of course, it's come from, you know, voodoo lore. And even before that, there, there were things in Africa going on and, and um, even in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. I think actually a lot of this started in Europe with uh, a lot of these uh, creatures that sort of came back from the dead. And depending on mm-hmm. what region you were from, they sort of had different characteristics. And I think, you know, this sort of the zombie, the werewolf, the vampire sort of all had their same uh, roots, origins, and the mm-hmm. same sort of mm-hmm. creature that came back from the dead. And it just depended on were they shapeshifters? Did they want blood? Did they eat flesh? Right. You know, what did they do? And it just it depends on where you're from and, and the sort of uh, folklore that uh, was around. But uh, that was sort of the birthplace of the zombie because the zombie is actually sort of this generic umbrella, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that uh, I think uh, a lot of these creatures have come from. There, there's just so much really great great fascinating history behind zombies mm-hmm. and the undead mm-hmm. and blood drinkers flesh eaters shapeshifters i mean it's mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. it's all crazy but uh it, it 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 is really fascinating and um you as a historian i'm sure you've uh, you know you've encountered a lot of this and uh oh sure oh yeah. sure there you know there i mean there's there's legends of you know undead creatures uh, really going back to to antiquity and and it's a, a fear of uh, that's kind of, I think, sort of part of the human consciousness is, is I think there will always be sort of a fear of, of something like that. Um, and, I, you know, I talked about this in the, in the, uh, the Blood Theater interview, too, that, uh, you know, horror, I, th- I think, is, is something very primeval kind of in the, in the uh, human soul. And I, I really had very little experience. I hadn't written very much horror before I started writing this book. Um, but I, I've really kind of gained an appreciation for sort of how it kind of touches various parts of, of the human consciousness. And, and if you look at, you know, horror literature, especially, you know, reaching back into, into the old days, um, you find so many of those same very kind of primeval themes. And what's, you know, what's fun about the idea of, of, you know, stories, especially in a modern context, is you can you can reinvent constantly reinvent those same stories in sort of a new way. Uh, if you look at something like you know True Blood or uh, Twilight, you know, really, yeah, Twilight, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, they're there's essentially reinventions. I mean, they're very yeah. old stories, so they're they're done. They're done in a very um, uh, you know, a modern style, but yeah. the, their main themes are are still still the things that uh, that we've been telling stories about for centuries. Yeah. So I find that very interesting. Yeah, and it just changes with the culture, with the time period mm-hmm. that you're in, with what's going on, and uh, what you're afraid of at that time. You know, exactly. And that's uh, I think that's where zombies I think really thrive is sort of the fears of the era that you're living in. You know, you talked uh, about uh, sort of nuclear. Um, things going on in the 50s and 60s, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, consequently, that's where we saw a lot of our zombie movies coming from. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, you know, of course, Vietnam and a lot of the wars going on had sort of an effect on that as well. And, um, you know, going into the 70s, um, man, we have uh, like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, things like The Grapes of Death. 
um, which was uh, an Italian zombie film that was based on pesticides. Huh. And uh, that was the whole thing. Pesticides on grapes. It was a, a, a European film. I'm thinking it was uh, uh, Italian, of course. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. focusing on people were drinking this wine that was coming from these grapes that were from, you know, that were treated with this, um, you know, pesticide that was mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. this untested sort of stuff that the government was doing. And so that's what created the zombies. So if you mm-hmm. drank this wine and... Uh, you know, into the 80s, you know, another nuclear threat. You know, of course, the Cold War going on and nuclear things, of course, surfacing mm-hmm, again. Mm-hmm. And um, so nowadays, you know, we look at, uh, at zombie films and uh, what are we afraid of? You know, we're, we're afraid of uh, we see a lot of things going on with social media, you know, and the mm-hmm, Internet. Mm-hmm. And, sure. uh, you know, the sort and, of. And, yeah. And so many of the threats, you know, now are, are you know, environmental threats. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned, you know, 28 days later and, and yeah, things like that. Um, kind of the blueprint for stories like that, of course, was uh, John Wyndham's uh, book, Day of the Triffids, which is really kind of one of the first real environmental uh, horror stories. So that was a book uh, before uh, I saw the original. Was that a 70s movie, I think? Um it, it was a book in this in the late fifties or early sixties, and I think they made a movie um, uh, in the in that era, like shortly after the book came out. And then it was a BBC series in the eighties. Yeah, because um, I saw a really early movie called Day Day of the Triffids, and it was like plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had to do with plants, right. you know, sort of taking over and and doing things. Right. But, it, it's it's basically wow. it's your zombie outbreak story, except. The instead of zombies, the the enemy is you know walking carnivorous plants basically. Nice, <laughs> um, but it's you know it's these kinds of environmental threats that that I think I think scare us now, and 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 I think that's very interesting because of you know climate change and and you know pesticides as you mentioned, and you know threats from uh, you know man made environmental threats, you know drugs, you know drug contamination, and. Uh, or, you know, fantastic scenarios about, you know, terrorists that get a hold of, you know, this weapon or that weapon. And, you know, there's so many different things you can do with, with stories like that. <coughs> so it's, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think a great uh, medium for storytelling, um, even, uh, you know, The Walking Dead. Are you, are you watching The Walking Dead by any chance? Um, you know, I haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet, um, but it's definitely on my list. There's so many of, 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 uh, people that I'm uh, that I uh, connect with are huge Walking Dead fans, so mm. I kind of have to get with the program. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's much more a drama um, than it is about the zombies at all. There's some uh-huh. you know juicy zombie scenes, but uh, I think you will like it for the storytelling. Um, I, you know, it all comes from Robert Kirkman and his original uh-huh. comic series, which uh, is right. amazing. And I don't know if you're a comic reader, but man. Um, even before you watch the TV show, I would recommend the comics um, because they are just unreal. They'll draw you in and just uh, keep you reading all night. Um, <laughs> Great. So, um, yeah, yeah, but uh, man, it's uh, that's another phenomenon you know going on right now that um, again oh, uses zombies for some great yeah. storytelling, but it doesn't focus on the zombies at all. You know, it focuses on. Uh, these characters and uh, what they're doing mm-hmm. and where they are. And it's just, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, every, every time I uh, click on my Twitter on, on Monday morning, I, I see hundreds of tweets about, oh, the governor did this or, you know, something uh, yeah. like something from The Walking Dead. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So a lot of people follow it, and they're not uh, you know quick enough to spoil it for a lot of people right, like exactly. me that DVR <laughs> it on Sunday and watch it maybe yeah. Monday or Tuesday. But I mean, give me give me a day or two. I mean, yeah. wow. Oh. <laughs> but anyhow, um, we we're talking about zombie movies and uh, actually uh, about the interview in general tonight. And uh, I'm like, dude, it would be great if, uh, you know, he chose a movie that we could talk about, you know, just sort of wrap things up. And and uh, I just love talking horror movies with horror people that uh, are in the industry, man. And, uh, you know, you chose you actually gave me a great list of films and we could talk about any one of them because they were all fantastic. But the one that really uh, struck me was uh, one of the zombie films. And it's one that is. uh, Oh, it's like 50 years old to this year, mm-hmm. which is, uh, wow, wow, sort of surreal. But um, Actually, it's older than that. 1943. 1943. Oh, 70. Yeah. Are we talking 70 yep. years ago, this thing? Oh Pretty gosh. much. <laughs> well, I am neither a, a, an historian nor a mathematician, um, which I, you know, have made more than clear tonight. But, um, wow, 70 years old? Man, what did you pick for us uh, tonight to uh, discuss? Here well, uh, I I wanted to talk about uh, I walked with a zombie, uh, the uh, one of the one of the famous old zombie films um, directed by uh, Jacques Tourneur, who do, who also uh, was uh, famous for Cat People, the original Cat People. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful film. I just saw it again recently, and uh, was uh, so so excited to hear that that you were also a fan of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's one I haven't seen for a few years, and again, I was uh, really excited that you brought it up because it gave me another reason to bring it up again and, and watch it. Uh, it's been one of my favorites. Actually, I I I, uh, I got done watching the movie about ten minutes before we got on tonight, oh. <laughs> and so it's really fresh in my mind. I just really wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to watch it again and be able to. Uh, to remember a lot of what was going on um, because I've seen it so many times. But uh, this movie was weird sort of in this era uh-huh. because we're uh, this was an RKO film. And, of course, RKO was mainstream. Uh, they really didn't give in to a lot of trends. I, I think they were more, uh, you know, going for the more timeless films and, uh, you know, something a little above your mainstream sort of schlock, your mainstream horror. They didn't do a lot of horror, and if they did, it was uh, sort of, you know, a little, uh, you know, a little bit above um, what you would see, uh, you know, in your run-of-the-mill theaters. But uh, this was a, a point in time where RKO, I think, was experiencing uh, some monetary difficulties, you know, where they're looking to uh, make a quick buck or two. And... Uh, they sort of conjured up a lot of titles to films. Um, I Walked With a Zombie being one, and I think Cat People was another, and a whole lot of other ones. And uh, they just sort of uh, sold, you know, they, they uh, hired a lot of producers, and they gave them these titles and said, hey, make us some movies that are going to make us some money, and there you go, just work with it. And uh, I Walked With a Zombie seemed like uh, a great title to a great film. And they handed this over to a man named Val Luton, a producer at the time, who uh, they thought was just going to give them a very quick film, a schlocky film, something that, yeah, it wasn't going to be timeless. It wasn't going to be anything special, but it, it would at least 
you know, garner interest in the theater at that time for the horror audiences, and they would go see it and make them a quick buck so they could make a few other films. And they had no idea that Val Luton actually was an artist. He was mm. actually a, a great artist. He had a great vision. And uh, he made so much more of this than <laughs> RKO ever expected. And uh, it went down as, uh, I think, one of the great movies, one of the great zombie films of the early zombie era. And uh, in the 40s, man, I mean, what's your take on this film? Um, what stands out to you? Oh, well, it's, I, I, it, there's so many things that are, that are great about it. Uh, it seems, all, what struck me the last time I, I watched it was that how much it seems like kind of a film noir. I mean, it, it looks almost like one of those kind of hard-boiled, just as a visual style, looks like one of those hard-boiled uh, detective stories from, you know, the 40s, uh, you know, the Raymond Chandler type of things. But it's a horror film. And it's so moody with the lighting and the... Uh, you know the, the the strange you know rustling noises in the in the cane fields in the middle of the night and uh, um, you know when the when the big tall zombie shows up and you know with the dead eyes it's just it's very powerful very powerful moments um, but it's also it's it's got such a beauty to it and I'm thinking of the uh, you know the main the main uh, female character with her long uh, you know flowing white robe and. Uh, things like that and this beautiful house in the Caribbean and it looks kind of like a Noel Coward play, sort of the the, the set. Uh, and just this juxtaposition of of these, you know, these these horrible, scary images with, with also this very kind of refined beauty. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I, they, they really did make make art when they when they made it and there was so much thought that went into just how it looked and, and how the story uh, kind of how the story played and there's you know as you know there's kind of a, a doomed love story that's at the at the heart of the plot and there's uh, feelings of you know redemption and of uh, you know oh I'm gonna save this lady and things like that and and some some themes that don't often come up in your standard horror films so there's, there's just so much to grab onto. Um, one of the other things that, that I thought was so interesting about the movie, it takes place in the Caribbean, obviously, on, on some uh, island that's either British or formerly British or, or something like that. And they have the uh, they make a lot of references to slavery, which is so interesting, I think, for a movie at that time made at the time or really kind of any Hollywood movie that 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 takes place in, in a place where there was slavery or where there's a consciousness still of, of slavery. And, and you see that in modern movies today that, you know, often dodge away from those kinds of issues. But, you know, this movie is, you know, the characters say, well, you know, we live on this Island and, you know, half of, you know, a small percentage of us are descended from the white masters. And most of the Island is descended from slaves. And there's the, there's the, the garden figure. That's the, the bowsprit of the old slave ship. That's a major point and things like that. And, and it's just kind of a, it's interesting how they play with this this you know very gloomy uh, tragic past and kind of make it sort of live again through the way the things that are happening on the screen you know show. Um, so it's it's very interesting how they how they did that and, and I don't I don't I haven't really seen that with a lot of other particularly zombie movies. Um, I guess what, what jumps out is uh, the original Night of the Living Dead, uh, which was the first of the, I mean, I Walk With a Zombie is clearly part of the sort of the voodoo zombie, uh, 
stories. Uh, and Night of the Living Dead was kind of the you know really among the first of the undead zombie type of type of stories. But there's almost kind of a racial consciousness in that movie too. With there's the main character who's African American, and there's it's made in the late '60s where there's all this kind of uh, tumultuous social change going on. And I think I Walk with a Zombie is kind of doing the same thing, but obviously in an earlier era. It was made during World War II. It was made in this this kind of when colonialism was sort of its last gasp, so to speak. Uh, so I find all of those themes just really, really fascinating in the way they, they made the movie with them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You touched on so much there. Um, you know, the main thing that uh, you, you mentioned last was uh, uh, sort of the exoticism of mm-hmm. uh, of these islands, you know, the Caribbean, especially from an American standpoint, a white standpoint. Um, you know, you see these islands and so many weird things going on down there, especially the voodoo. And mm-hmm. uh, we don't understand it. You know, especially in a place that uh, we're not used to, a place that is seemingly so beautiful uh, with the trees and the beaches and and so many great things. Um, We don't understand this underlying sort of weird thing going on called voodoo. And uh, how could anything so terrible be going on? And and that's, uh, I think, one of the great uh, themes in this film is this surface level beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus this underlying rottenness, decay, evil, and those are words that are are, are used right in this movie. You know, and the mm-hmm. first you know few scenes that we see as this nurse is going from America down to this island, this uh, Saint Sebastian. You know, um, the, the other guy, the um, oh, what's his name, uh, Paul, mm-hmm. um, who is uh, you know the the plantation owner. Um, he comes up and he's like, you think this is so beautiful and right, it may yeah. look this way, but believe me, you know, underneath it's rotten, it's decaying. And she doesn't necessarily believe him at first, but then she sort of has to experience what's going on. And even then it's so complex mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it sort of leaves it up to the viewer to figure out what's going on, what is truth. What is actually reality here, which is, uh, I think, a very, very strong point here, is that, um, you know, even getting to the end of the movie, you don't really know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what, I mean, is this voodoo or is this traditional medicine? Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. how is this explained? Um, Which plays throughout this movie the whole way, even through the voodoo scenes that we see. Uh, I love the, uh, the, the voodoo rituals that we see, especially mm-hmm. the main one, the first one that they come to, where um, you know they they find out there's a big spoiler there, and uh, the sword goes through her arm and everything, and mm-hmm. you see everything play out. But uh, I just uh, I love this this huge thing where it leaves a big question mark in your head, mm-hmm. and the viewer has to figure it out for yourself. I mean, what do you think was was going on here? I mean, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, what do you think was actually going on on? Uh, this island well it's like you say it's so hard to say um i I think part of it's uh, one of the one of the things i I thought about was you know maybe it was uh it was happening in in uh the nurse's head or at least you know parts of it were merely kind of what she perceived Mm -hmm. i mean the simple explanation of course is that the uh 
uh, is that, you know, the woman had fallen ill from the fever and, and, you know, that's a very kind of pat explanation and, you know, her spinal cord was destroyed or whatever. And maybe sort of the voodoo, you know, the, the voodoo that she witnesses and the, the horror that she witnesses is kind of a way to sort of fill in the gaps that she doesn't really know or doesn't really understand. So I think it's, it's interesting that, that you suggest that it's, I mean, it is open-ended and it's kind of, I think, not only open-ended in the mind of the audience, but also the mind of the characters. Um, and I think it, it, one of the film's strengths is that it's not really overt with saying it is supernatural or it is, you know, black magic or whatever. It's, but it's almost the perception of this evil or the supernatural power that is the reality. Whether or not it can really do the things that they think it does, it's still um, the, the, the power of the perception is really what scares people. Yeah. So. I, maybe that's a roundabout answer. I don't know. <laughs> no, great answer. Great answer. And, and to me, that's what sort of the, the whole voodoo thing is about. Um, you know, going even outside of this film, um, looking at voodoo and what it is, it seems to be um, a lot of sort of in-the-moment perception, sort of freaking out and not knowing what's going on sort of things. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's very... Uh, it's hard for me to explain because, of course, I'm not in the Caribbean. I'm not of any sort of African descent, and I haven't been down there uh, very much. Even though I, I have been to uh, both Haiti uh, for a couple weeks, and I was in uh, um, uh, the Dominican Republic mm -hmm. um, for a couple weeks. So I have been there, and I have actually experienced the cultures and experienced voodoo, actually, believe it or not. I've, uh, I've, <laughs> I've seen some weird shit. <laughs> um, down there, uh, have you ever have you ever been to the Caribbean by any chance? No, uh, I I haven't. I would I would be really interested to go. Um, I did live in New Orleans for three years. Oh well, that uh, that almost counts. That's a that's a yeah interesting place. <laughs> so, yeah, and and a lot of the same traditions uh, that gave rise to to voodoo. I mean, voodoo was a was a strong presence in in the colonial. Uh, history of new orleans and yeah. you know marie laveau and and you know there's the famous voodoo museum down in the french quarter and you know i think a lot of that is sort of uh stage managed for for tourists but there yeah. there is still a kind of a historical and, and cultural consciousness um voodoo was kind of a response really to slavery um right in in, right. in these areas and it was a sort of a pastiche of the the Christian uh, tradition that you know the slave owners taught, and then the West African traditions that uh, many slaves still had when they when they came over. Um, and I think, I mean, voodoo had a presence in in New Orleans, uh, it, it, but I think it kind of had a little different niche because uh, slavery was, I mean, it was, it was you know horrible and cruel everywhere it was practiced certainly, yeah. but it was especially inhuman in in those uh, Caribbean islands in Haiti and yeah. places like that. Saint Domingue, which is what what uh, Haiti was was called when it was a French colony, it was also the, you know far and away the most profitable of of any New World colony in the entire history of the world and the only uh, uh, Haiti is the only nation that was actually founded by a slave rebellion Wow! Um, but I would love to see that because there is so much history down there um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, so much fascinating uh, uh, so many fascinating things that, that are there my, my era of focus really in, in my professional 
historian career is uh, the the U.S. early republic. So it's kind of that that post-revolution era, and it's surprising the degree to which the events that were happening in Haiti and in San Domingue really uh, resonated throughout not just the United States, but Europe as well at, at the time it was happening. Wow. So that history is very much alive, I think, for them in a way that, that maybe, you know, we Americans who don't have that cultural background have, have a harder time understanding, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's really a shock um, to uh, go down to, you know, the, you know, um, What's the name of the island in full? It's a split between Haiti and the Dominican uh, Republic. Espe- uh, um, Hispan- Hispaniola. Hispaniola. Um, yeah. it is, uh, it's truly a trip to go down there and uh, spend any sort of time, even at a resort, um, because it's uh, the culture down there, the people down there. I mean, it's uh, for especially Americans. The first time I was down in Haiti, I actually flew down into um, um, Port-au-Prince, Mm-hmm. And um, th- it was like a dirt runway. I mean, literally. It, you know? <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm already freaked out, being that the plane was that close to all these uh, to all these mountains. You know, sort of darting back and forth in between the mountains, getting onto the island. But then, as soon as we land, it's on like this dirt thing. And uh, as soon as we land, there are all these American soldiers who are there with uh, like these AKs and all these crazy things mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, you know, of course, I'm American, so I have my passport, and I'm completely comfortable going to American soldiers, even if they have a gun that's, you know, bigger than I am. And, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of asking them, you know, what's going on. And uh, they're like, well, we're sort of here for an orphanage. You know, they're building an orphanage in town, and so we're here to oversee that. And meanwhile, they have, like, fucking, they have, like, razor wire, they have AKs, <laughs> they have, you know, these enormous things. And I'm like... Literally, are we spending this this kind of money just to make sure an orphanage gets built in Haiti? And it was right around the time, and this is like 10, 15 years ago. And we're seeing some tensions between us and Haiti again. There were some weird things. And so it's like there's always been this sort of, uh, you know, strange relationship between mm. us and the Caribbean. And I think some rumors and stories made up and embellishments on traditions and and things and it spawned a lot of movies like we see in uh I walked with the zombie because uh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know certainly there are a lot of uncertainties there and even going back I think uh, one of my favorite favorite movies even even more so than I walked with the zombie is uh, white zombie from oh, 1932 that's a great one. oh Bela Lugosi, <sighs> yes oh my god <laughs> I think that is uh I think my favorite sort of early zombie movie. You know, if you classify zombies into, you know, zombie movies into sort of eras. Uh-huh. Um, and pretty much that was the first zombie movie of all time. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I can't think of uh, another one before that. Um, but um, that movie really, uh, it really captured uh, the fears that we're, uh, mm-hmm. you know, feeling about that whole, uh, that whole region. And, uh, it, it, again, embellishments and storytelling, and who knows what is really true, what's really going on, and it's uh, it's it, it's just so complex and so funny the history between us and these uh, these Caribbean islands, and uh, what is real, what's not real, and it all mm-hmm. has to do with uh, you know you mentioned slavery, a uh, huge issue, but um, you know it's uh, I just. 
it's so hard to really get a good feel and know what is what is really true here in history and mm-hmm. what has really affected history. I, I, oh my god, I'm going off here on uh, so many <laughs> unknowns. I don't know what to say. You know, it's a you know such an interesting thing to uh, to talk about. But um, man, man, it's a. Uh, Am I overwhelming you here with uh, you know, oh, so many? Yeah. Uh, I hope not. Not at all. Not at all. No, mm. it's 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 been real interesting. Oh, well, cool, cool. And uh, it's been great talking with you. Of course, walked. I, I walked with the Zombie Man. Uh, again, a great film that I think um, everyone should see. I mean, even uh, even modern zombie film uh, sort of appreciators. Um, this is one that uh, really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Out of this time mm-hmm. era, because uh, I mean, really, uh, there aren't many to right. uh, <laughs> you know to speak of from this era, and uh, they did it right. And of course, this is you know again Val Luton um, having a great vision for the movies that he was sort of dealt, handing this off to Jacques Trenar, who Trenar, Trenar, I'm not French, I can't speak French. Jacques Trenar, <laughs> yeah, I don't I, know, I can't pronounce it either. Jacques Trenar, I don't, I don't know, um, but. Um, so this was a, a great, great zombie film for this uh, period. So can you think of a better zombie film in the uh, the 40s and 50s than this? Is there a better one? Gosh, no, I really can't. This, yeah. this, one, this one really stands out for me. Yeah. Good call. Good call. And I am, you know, you're, you're just not knowing you at all coming into this interview. You're um, actually extremely, extremely cool. Um, that you've picked this film and uh, again written such a great book, as far as I've read, at least you know. Great, yeah. Um, great. Well, hopefully the ending won't disappoint you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it will. <laughs> I really hope so too, and uh, I'm banking on that right now. But uh, Sean, it has been fantastic uh, talking oh, well, with you, you getting to meet you, and just uh, man, I could go on for like hours and hours because you are uh, such a wealth of historical information and just uh really great things man and uh are you gonna come on the show again and uh talk about some other things hopefully sure i'd love to oh uh, no this is this has been great and awesome. uh uh actually i i am going to have another zombie book come out next year um that's what i was hoping publisher. to hear nice yeah it's uh, it's going to be called the zombie rebellion and uh, it's set in, this is kind of more my official uh, period. This is, it's set in Western Pennsylvania in the 1790s. And the rebellion in question is the Whiskey Rebellion, which is kind of a, a little known, oh. uh, but very interesting episode that occurred shortly after the Revolutionary War, uh, where a number of, uh, number of people who'd been drinking too much were rather upset to hear that uh, the federal government had placed a tax on their whiskey. So they started to take up arms against against the government, and uh, George Washington actually led an army, uh, an American army, into the field, and uh, he was the only sitting president to command troops in battle. Um, But of course, in my in my tale, uh, naturally, there's a zombie outbreak at the same time. So this. Kind of gets some some interesting uh, interesting dynamics. So uh, certainly, when when that comes out, I'd I'd love to talk to you about that one, or uh, you know maybe come back sooner. Who knows? Oh, I'd love uh, anything at all, man. You want to talk about? I mean, I'm fascinated because you're such a uh, you know, like I said, a wealth of information, and you do it very interestingly. I mean, it's Thank just uh, 
just really great. So, Sean, thank, thank you. you. Where can people uh, find out more about you on the World Wide Web? You have SeanMunger.com, do you not? Yes, I do. That's my website, and you can find uh, a blog uh, mostly, but also has some information on uh, Zombies of Byzantium and on uh, previous books that I wrote. I, I wrote a couple of uh, science fiction novels um, starting in 2006. So you can find some information on that. Of course, you can get the book itself, uh, Zombies of Byzantium. You can get it in on Amazon, uh, both in, in print form or uh, Kindle. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. Uh, they also have it in, in paperback or the Nook format. You can get it on, the, on my publisher's website, which is Samhain Publishing. Uh, you just go there and just click the, the tab for uh, horror, and you'll see it up there, and it should come right up. Uh, you can order it from a bookstore as well, um, and uh, also I have a uh, uh, this uh, just happened a couple of days ago, but I'm I'm running a uh, a serial on a website called JukepopSerials.com. That's J-U-K-E-P-O-P Serials S-E-R-I-A-L-S. That's all one word. Um, and the serial is called The Armored Satchel. It's it's not horror, but it's a World War II spy thriller, uh, nice. which is something. Something I've always wanted to write, and uh, serial fiction, which was a huge staple of you know writers from time immemorial. Uh, Charles Dickens wrote almost all his books as serials. Uh, serial fiction is really coming back thanks to the internet, and and sites like uh, Juke Pop Serials are, are kind of bringing it back. You can you can read the story for free. You don't have doesn't won't cost you anything. Um, so that just started like within the last couple of days. So I'm uh, I'm already kind of knee deep in writing new chapters of. Uh, a World War II spy thriller. So that's kind of something a little bit off the reservation as far as horror goes, but, uh, you know, something that you'll see probably mentioned on my, on my website as well. So I'm on Twitter as well. So, uh, and I, I have a lot of fans on Twitter. I love to talk to. So, uh, it's just Sean Munger, Sean un- underscore lunch score, and then Munger. And that's my Twitter handle. So Sweet. join me. Sweet. And I will have all these links up on, uh, my website. In the show notes for this show and Sean man uh, wow um, I'm sure that uh, everything that people check out that you do is going to be absolutely amazing um, it's just uh, because it's been amazing talking with you well, tonight and thank I, you I've, I've really enjoyed it and thank you for having me on your show sweet sweet let's do this again please okay please come let's. on again Sean Munger absolutely. thank you thank you for being okay. on the show zombies of Byzantium is more that amazing, absolutely uh, beyond amazing, at least uh, the halfway through the book that I am. And uh, Sean has assured me that the last half of the book is as good, if not better, than the last. And uh, seriously, I, I, I'm enjoying his writing. So, of course, SeanMunger.com. Of course, I am Midnight Corey. You can find me at MidnightCorey.com. And this show is at Electric Chair Show. Dot com and a lot of other weird places on the internet and uh, man it's been a great night so uh hey let's call it a show sean thank you again for joining me tonight man and uh hopefully we'll be hearing from you again i went down to the guitar store and i bought myself some things then i went home to fix this guitar to see if it could sing when i got done i plugged it in but it made no sound at all so I was getting pretty pissed and I plugged it into the wall.
pipe and would rather yell and spit. If you don't think you like this guitar, you're really asking for shit. Cause when I get mad, I get red, and then I start to see. This guitar's gonna fuck your face cause it knows how to scream. I'm Bill. I was the one who did the cover art for the Stones' Sucking in the 70s LP.